On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Robert Kolb about Lutheranism. This is part of our series we're doing on different faith traditions, learning directly from those within them. We hope to promote a strong spirit of charity and curiosity within each interview that leads us to a better understanding. So we're going to cover all the basic topics. What is Lutheranism? How is it defined? How does Martin Luther connect to Lutheranism? How is Lutheranism in general connected to the great tradition? What's unique about Lutheranism? What makes it special? What areas of Lutheranism might be susceptible to critique or that you might get the most questions about? And much, much more. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stavoniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do that with particular virtues in mind. So we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture, or at least help cultivate something that embodies virtues like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And as part of this series that we've been doing, we've been trying to talk to different people who embody the best of different faith traditions to understand them a little bit more. So Brandon and I are both Baptists. Uh, personally, you know, I grew up not knowing a lot about different faith traditions. I mean, I knew there was, you know, Roman Catholic Church, you know, locally or or a Lutheran church who we're going to talk to Dr. Robert Kolb about Lutheranism here in a second. Um, I knew those things, but I didn't know a lot about them. So what we've tried to do is say, hey, Let's ask these people, these experts, these people who confess these things, like what is it that they actually believe, what, what's unique about it, so that we can better understand and better appreciate the diversity uh, of the Christian tradition. So, Dr. Kolb, I'm, I'm super excited about this. Um, before we jump in, I want to let everybody know who you are. So I imagine probably, I don't know, 60 to 70% of our listeners are Baptists, and if they're like me, they don't know a lot of Lutherans, though. I mean, in seminary, I remember read, starting to read Martin Luther, and I was like, "Man, this guy's awesome." Uh, so I think a lot of people like Lutheranism. So uh, you, if I'm right, you're the mission professor of systematic theology emeritus at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, which I grew up in St. Louis, so right, right, right down the road. And you've co-authored or authored. I mean, numerous books. So you've got Luther's Treatise on Christian Freedom and its Legacy. You've got Martin Luther and the Enduring Word of God, the Wittenberg School, or I guess Wittenberg School, and its Scripture-Centered Proclamation, The Genius of Luther's Theology, Luther's and the Story of Stories of God, Martin Luther, Con Confessor of the Faith, The Christian Faith, uh, Lutheran Exposition, and you're also co-editor of the Book of Concord, the 2000 Translation. And you've lectured at more than 40 educational institutions on five continents, at all sorts of ecclesiastical gatherings around the world. So I think you are a primetime expert uh, to to talk to about this. So before we ask more just specific doctrinal sort of questions, I, I'm curious, did, did you grow up a Lutheran? Uh, did you at some point in your life decide you found Lutheranism attractive for some reason? What what, what happened there? I, I did grow up Lutheran. Um, in Iowa, in those days, we joked that my, my parents' marriage was a mixed marriage. She was a Norwegian Lutheran, and, and he was a German Lutheran. Um, but uh, uh, I grew up, uh, my, my co-editor of the Book of Concord Translation, Tim Wengert, and I often say that, that the, the milk of our, of our babyhood uh, was Luther's small catechism. And uh, I 
had a, a great aunt and uncle who had a huge picture for a three, four, five, six-year-old visitor in the home who had a, this huge picture of Luther with the Bible in his hand. And uh, uh, so I, I grew up in that atmosphere. But I suppose I'm still a Lutheran and uh, a joyful, uh, what was your word, cheerful, confessional Lutheran, um, because I find that that the that Luther's understanding of of who God is and what it means to be human just fit into life as I've experienced it, and so it's um, it's not been a struggle at least in recent years for me to to hang on to what I think are the are the very central uh, elements in in Luther's faith. Doctor Cole, maybe we can start with a, a kind of a high level overview of Lutheranism. If you were to meet a stranger. Uh, maybe they're a Christian, but they don't know anything about Lutheranism, and they just ask you, you know, what are the core tenets of Lutheranism? You know, what would be your answer to that person? Well, let me say one thing before I get to the core tenets. Um, if that person had hardly heard of Lutherans, that would be an advantage. Uh, if they had experienced a few Lutherans, then they might have a very jumbled view, uh, because Lutheranism... Uh, it went from Germany very quickly into the Nordic countries, uh, into Eastern Europe. Uh, then uh, it became a persecuted church in the east, actually, of Europe, while it was an establishment church in, in Central Europe. Uh, but then it, it became an immigrant church in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in the United States uh, or in North America and South America and Australia, South Africa. And then it became a mission church uh, fairly early in the uh, very beginning of the 18th century. Um, two German um, missionaries went to South India, where I've had the privilege of teaching, getting acquainted with Lutherans in that part of the world. And so uh, the term Lutheran, I think of as a sociological term that covers a wide spectrum uh, and historically over the years uh, has uh, represented everything from um, quite uh, what we would call in the United States today a, a conservative brand of, of Christianity, faithful to the Catholic tradition, and and on the other hand, uh, in the attempt to make Luther make sense in various cultures, um, uh, some pretty wild departures from what I think Luther was all about, but um, those are honest attempts to make him speak or to make the whole tradition speak and make scripture speak above all. It's not about Luther, really, but to make scripture speak uh, in different situations. So what I what I would represent with you today is really my understanding of what Luther taught, uh, which I think is a lively message for us today. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's my attempt to make him talk in 21st century North American English. So some core tenets, I suppose. One of the insights that I've gotten from my research in maybe the last 10 years uh, is that while he was very faithful to the Catholic tradition as he understood what made it universal Catholic, um, he also introduced radical change because he delved into Scripture with the tools of the movement that scholars now call biblical humanism. Erasmus had published the Greek New Testament while Luther was lecturing on Romans, actually. Um, a man named Johannes Reuchlin had brought Hebrew across the Alps into, uh, into uh, 
Germany, and Luther had the best new linguistic tools from Reichlin, a dictionary of grammar and so forth. So he really, he really knew Hebrew better than he knew Greek. And so he plunged into scripture and found there, especially with the help of Erasmus and his own colleague, uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, new definitions for key terms. And, and that, that caused some rather radical shifts in the way he understood what it means to be a Christian. So I'm curious, we've interviewed quite a few people in different traditions. So we think Pentecostalism, think uh, um, Methodism, and all, all across the board. And one question I've always wanted to ask is, how is this particular um, understanding of the Christian faith connected to the great tradition? So I'm thinking Lutheranism, how is that? And I imagine a lot of that has to do with Lutheran. You know, for my own Reformation studies, I think there is some disconnect between the popular understanding of Luther, where he's this just, you know, I'm going to tear down the Catholic Church. But at least for my studies, it's, it's that's not the concern at all. It, it's more of, let's get back to the basics and reform the Catholic yeah. Church. I want to be part of the Catholic. I don't want to splinter it off. So right. can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, he was excommunicated. He didn't say, I'm going to form a new church. As a matter of fact, it took him a fair amount of time, at least 10, 15 years, for it really to dawn on him that there was no going back. He was, um, And Melanchthon hung on even longer, I think, in his hopes that there could be some restoration. But the, um, the kind of key definition that Lutherans use for... Um, for the heart of of the biblical message is what what is contained in the book of concord which is a collection of of um, really seven documents from the 16th century but the first documents in it are the apostles creed the nicene creed and the athanasian creed uh, the so-called ecumenical creeds uh, that's really not a medieval term but in the reformation uh, the reformation traditions began to use it to identify the Trinitarian and Christological center of the faith. And, uh, and so the, the confessors, Luther, Melanchthon, and, and their students, really saw their efforts in the 16th century, maybe we could say it this way, as an expansion of the words in the Nicene Creed for us and for our salvation. And it was this question of, how can I stand righteous before God? That that was really the key connection. But um, one of the people I've studied, a man named Syriaka Spangenberg, a student of Luther and Melanchthon's, found 74 patristic citations, citations from the ancient fathers, to prove that they taught justification by faith. Now, sometimes I think the fathers would have been surprised to know that that's what they were teaching, frankly. <laughs> Uh, simply because they lived in the Roman Empire and and had a, a, a legalistic framework for thinking, um, but there was this this sincere effort to say we are teaching the core of the faith, and it's you people who are following the Roman papacy who have deserted um, the proper understanding, for instance, of righteousness, of righteousness of God, righteousness of of uh, human beings and uh, original sin, and faith, and grace, and so forth. What would you say are the most unique aspects of Lutheranism when you compare it to these other traditions? Is it something um, you know to do with Lutheran Christology, or is it a particular doctrinal emphasis or a liturgical practice that really sets it apart from these other traditions? I think the, 
perhaps the first thing to mention and, and the most important is that Luther redefined what the word righteousness means, uh, both God's righteousness and our righteousness. Um, Luther, I think righteousness probably meant something like uh, Eric Erickson, the, the 20th century um, psychiatrist, philosopher, uh, made identity a key to human personality and, and our sense of identity is key to human personality. And that that's in the ballpark of what um, the 16th century theologians on all sides meant with righteousness. If you're righteous, you are corresponding to the identity that you ought to have. And Luther said that the righteousness of God is not that he judges fairly or something like that. The righteousness of God is that he loves his people and delivers them uh, and is there for them and calls them back to himself and won't let them run away uh, un unless they, in the mystery of the continuation of sin and evil in the world or the mystery of sin and evil uh, at all, um, somehow he, he tries to hang on to them. Well, I frankly was a little bit dubious about that 35, 40 years ago as I started getting deeper into Luther and thought, no, righteousness really means to, to give fair judgments. And I started reading scripture, just kind of skimming it, looking for the word righteous. I skipped pretty lightly over Leviticus, and I got well into the Old Testament. But what I found was that two-thirds, three-quarters at least, of the claims that God is being righteous have to do with his mercy, his steadfast loving kindness, those kinds of words and phrases. And I think Luther was on to something. Um, his, Luther is very strong on the wrath of God. He, as a, as a young man, as a young uh, brother in the cloister, had suffered under the wrath of God, and he knew it was real. Um, but he saw it as the wrath of a father, uh, particularly in his later years when he had children of his own. Uh, he uh, used the, it's more than a metaphor, I think, of father and child for the relationship between God and us. And then when it comes to human righteousness, he said in a way that, that theologians had generally not said, um, the Bible recognizes two dimensions to human righteousness. Um, even Augustine had said, we're saved by grace alone, God does it all, but what is it that God does that saves us? And, uh, and Augustine said, well, he enables us to keep the Ten Commandments. He enables us to be obedient, and that makes us truly righteous. That fulfills our identity, or that's the core of our identity. And Luther discovered and again, I would say the help of, of uh, the Greek scholars Melanchthon and Erasmus really contributed. Luther discovered that, that righteousness is a total gift. And because he had understood grace not as some kind of mechanism that's planted in us that enables us to do this obedience that Augustine or Aquinas talked about, Righteousness became for him God's favor. That was a word I think that he picked up from Erasmus, as a matter of fact. The favor dei, the favor of God. Why are you uh, restored to your full humanity through faith in Christ? Simply because the Father wants to love you. There's, there's no other explanation. What makes you righteous in his sight? He's very glad when you obey his commands. That's what he 
why he forgives your sins so that you'll not return to sin, but so that you will be obedient. But what makes you righteous in his sight? It is his love. It's not your performance. And so it's that shift from human performance, not not abandoning human performance as a as really the demonstration that we really trust God's pronouncement of righteousness. But it's that that understanding that God is faithful. The the Hebrew word uh, that we get amen from, these uh, three letters, A-M-N-N, um, God's faithfulness and our faithfulness back to him is is the core of human identity as a child of God. I think that's maybe the the most important single insight of Luther. Maybe I'm I'm curious about his understanding of the Eucharist. So I think what his terminology is, Christ is present in, with, and under, uh, you know, the elements. Is that a, like, how is he thinking about that doctrine? Um, I think it's important to understand that, that both Roman Catholics, well, I think there may be three ways of understanding how the Word of God works. Um, uh, the, the medieval tradition said that if you use the ritual words, um, God will hear them and God will honor them as a, a, an adequate human performance. So it's, it's going through, it's using language as a, um, it's hard not to be unfair to medieval Catholicism in this regard, but a kind of uh, almost mechanical use of language. And I think uh, Swingley particularly, Calvin to a large extent, under the influence and, and also the Anabaptist tradition um, in reaction to that ritualistic view of language, um, had a more Platonic-based understanding uh, that, um, that human language points to a reality, represents a reality that's there in heaven. And Luther came out of a different philosophical background. He was taught by uh, those who had been influenced by the 14th century uh, philosopher William of Ockham, theologian and philosopher. And Ockham uh, had been intensely interested in God's creation and God as creator and God's presence in creation. And Luther had that background. And so he uh, he thought that, that Swingley couldn't really be thinking right or couldn't be sincere when he said what later became known as as the rule that the finite can't uh, carry the infinite. And Luther said as an alchemist, God's almighty. God can do everything. God's not imprisoned by a principle that says the finite can't uh, deliver the infinite. And so he believed that the word of God in absolution, for instance, actually forgives sins. You're 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 actually receiving it through the words of your fellow Christian that forgives your sins and so forth. And so um, he had this sense that God is present in Scripture. Uh, it's not just that God uh, inspired it one day and and said have fun with it. It's that uh, God, the Holy Spirit, remains present. I once did a a witness workshop in which I wanted to talk about our use of scripture in witnessing, and I, I called it, don't open that book, it'll kill you. But Luther um, believed that the word of God, as as God's uh, law, as his plan for human life, comes and says to the sinner, you're dead. 
Uh, so at any rate, God's present there. And Luther believed then that because he did not, he was not able to interpret um, this is my body, this is my blood as a metaphor. He was pretty sophisticated as an alchemist. He was a pretty sophisticated under, um, student of language. And uh, so he had what we might call a sense of performative speech. And if if Christ said, um, uh, I am present in my body and blood, he's present in his body and blood. And Luther didn't teach consubstantiation. Sometimes I hear uh, students who learn that in their Lutheran confirmation classes. But Luther said no, no form of explanation is going to explain uh, how Christ's body and blood are present. They're just there. Enjoy them. Because this uh, awe, awesome, wondrous God is uh, so in love with us that he's making himself present in this way, too. I'd like to go back to something that Jordan mentioned earlier. Um, so Luther is the figure that is, is understood as the head, you know, at the head of the Reformation, right? And I want to know if there's anything for you that you you lament the most about how Luther has been received now looking back, you know, 500 years at a popular level. Are there popular misconceptions about his story that have just sort of taken on a life of their own? And there's something that most people believe about Luther that's just simply untrue. Maybe it's part of uh, a story that's been passed down that's untrue or something about his person that's untrue that you think we need to set the record straight on. Actually, I th there are two alternative questions. Um, that are easier to answer are there things that are not true that are still a delight uh and there's there's for instance <laughs> that works the, too that's okay <laughs> the, there's the story about uh if tomorrow if i knew that tomorrow was the last day i'd plant an apple tree that's actually documented for the first time in the mouths of some lutheran pietist uh, on the, I think it's the late 18th century i've forgotten exactly when um but it does that does represent uh, the kind of attitude he had. We are called to be serving God in his creation today. We serve nature and the world around us, and we serve one another. Uh, it's not good for that, that Adam guy to be alone. Uh, and so we're, we're bound in human community. Uh, and, and so uh, taking care of nature on the day before Judgment Day is... Uh, is proper for him, even though he didn't say that. The other question that I, I would rather avoid, but I don't think we should, is um, uh, what about Luther and the Jews? I, 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 I find it easier than I used to to handle Luther's um, dismissal of capitalism, but he, his family had suffered much at the hands of the big bankers. But Luther's um, uh, prejudice against the Jews cannot be excused with, with well, everybody did it. Everybody did do it uh, among Christians in Europe, with very, very few exceptions. Um, but particularly at the end of his life, there was a fury in Luther because he believed that Jews were actively seeking Christian converts, and he was sure that the last day was just around the corner. He thought he might not die, but experience Christ's coming, as a matter of fact. And so... Um, so you can you can talk about his attitude toward the Jews in in all sorts of frameworks, and a friend of mine, Steve Burnett, at the University of Nebraska, is working on on a book. He Steve is actually not a Luther scholar, but he's he's an expert on um, uh, 
on Jewish exegesis in the late medieval, early modern period. And uh, he's looked carefully at Luther's so-called anti-Jewish writings, and, and most of his anti-Jewish statements come toward the end of his life, um, in part when these rumors were circulating about Christian converts uh, to Judaism. Uh, but most most of the comments are also exegetical comments. They don't understand this Old Testament passage as Trinitarian or Christological, and Luther thought it obviously was. Um, it's But still, there are some very bad statements that he makes, and uh, we can only say he was a sinner like uh, all others. And we must also admit that he said just as nasty things about Roman Catholics and, and Anabaptists, too, if you'll pardon by mentioning that. You know, I don't take myself to be an Anabaptist at all. So, well, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not— It I depends mean, on how you define it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So but, I think me and Brandon are like, we come from the Magisterial magisterial Reformation. We're the offspring, offshoot of the, you know, the separatist Puritans, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, again, you can say it was the spirit of the times, but it— it still, from our perspective, doesn't really um, excuse that that kind of vehemence. Mm-hmm. But um, but Luther was getting old. Well, that's no excuse. Um, I'm 80 this year. Uh, but Luther uh, Luther wasn't well physically. Uh, and he was scared stiff that that uh, Satan was going to snatch souls out of God's hands. And uh, so he used his temperament as well as his his brains against his enemies. Yeah, that's helpful. So uh, transition a little bit to, uh, I think, a positive note and a light. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in understanding what it is that is so attractive to different people about their own faith, denomination, or tradition. You know, I, I talked to a lot of Baptists and they're like, you know, I love being a Baptist for X, Y, Z reason. What is it yeah. about Lutheranism that you just really delight in? Um, the, I think Lutheran theology, starting with Luther, works itself out between two poles. Uh, the one is biblical faithfulness. Um, the authority really lies in God's speaking through the prophets and apostles in a very personal way to us today. Um, As I say, don't open that book, it'll kill you. Uh, It'll also give you a new life, and that's risky too, uh, because the new life of Christ is a life of daring. But So it's that biblical faithfulness on the one hand, and, uh, and pastoral concern, concern for the repentance of sinners and the consolation of the repentant that brings them into a life of obedience uh, and and uh, that really frees them. Luther's great treatise on Christian freedom, uh, he talked about the bondage to our neighbor that results from our freedom from sin, death, and, and God's wrath. Um, but he could have said it's freedom from those things and it's freedom for being truly human. Uh, because uh, because the way his message then comes across, if you read him in his sermons particularly, uh, is, is that this is a life that God gives for, our, for the enjoyment of being able to 
at the cost of suffering very often, uh, be his, his hands, his mouth, um, his feet in the lives of others. And so it's that, it's that practical, here's an answer for, uh, here's Christ coming as the answer for uh, us in the midst of, of all kinds of struggles in daily life that proceeds um, insofar as one can uh, be faithful uh, in faithfulness to the scriptures. Are there any areas in Lutheranism, you know, 2021, let's, uh, maybe we should restrict this to uh, Lutheranism, Lutheranism in America uh, that, that bring concern to your mind? Are there any controversies that are going on within Lutheranism or is there a trend that's going on that you don't think is a good trend? Um, anything like that? Those have happened in every era of Lutheranism, starting with Luther's own. He had a student who, who really got the message, you shouldn't, uh, shouldn't mess with the law. The law is the enemy. It's going to kill you. And so he said the, the law has no role in the Christian life. Now, he didn't want to encourage disobedience. He wasn't an antinomian, even though that's what he was called then and now. His name was Johann Agricola. But he, um, <clears throat> but he simply uh, actually turned the gospel then into law because the gospel was what instructs us. And, and Luther conceived of the gospel as, as what God does for us and the law is what tells us uh, what to do um, as sanctified people as well as, uh, as well as accusing us. So today, yes, I have uh, all sorts of concerns. That goes with, I think, getting old. Um, on the one hand, Lutherans have tried because they're they're an immigrant people in an in in an Anglo culture. They have tried to conform, and I think too many of us have taken over uh, the standards that in themselves are probably proper for for social justice and and those kinds of concerns. And those are very valid concerns. But sometimes we've let them get in the driver's seat rather than the pronouncement of absolution and the encouragement of the repentant life. On the other hand, and maybe this is part of the immigrant um, heritage too, some of, some of my fellow, um, some of my closest friends actually, when we fought uh, at this seminary over biblical um, interpretation 40, 50 years ago, uh, I think thought that that a, an inerrant Bible would bring a perfect church. And when it didn't, which was a very naive thing for Lutherans to think, um, when it didn't, they've turned all too longing eyes toward Constantinople or, or, uh, or Rome. And, um, and I'm quite at home in Wittenberg, frankly. Uh, I... I uh, I think my own brand of, of Lutheranism has been altogether too shy in giving public witness and, and being willing to dialogue with other Christians and get out there. And We've tended to be a kind of circle the wagons, uh, uh, governed by a circle the wagons mentality too often. Um, but this joyful confession of uh, Luther's understanding that there are two dimensions to righteousness, his understanding of the of the power of the Word of God that we kind of touched on when we talked about the Lord's Supper, that uh, and th that's an easier message to get to make clear, I think, now that um, uh, Searles and and uh, the whole the whole performative speech movement has 
given us a different linguistic base for understanding how language works. Uh, Luther thought God's speech was more than performative. It's actually recreative. But um, uh, those kinds of emphases, I think, uh, need to be sounded rather than a kind of retreat into a, a, a more dependence on ritual and more dependence on hierarchy. And the only thing that's really going to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. And all our human institutional um, uh, approaches simply aren't going to do it. They'll always end up as Luther defines sin at one point, turning us in on ourselves. Now, are there any questions that you get frequently from non-Lutherans who are like, what is going on here? What is what is supposed to be meant by X doctrine or X belief? Yeah. Well, I suppose the, the understanding of, of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper um, what was what was sort of neglected in the 16th century, and I think is often neglected when that question is asked today, is um, when I look at the bread of the supper um, and don't see any body or can't take it to a chem lab and find uh, corpuscles in it, um, what am I really to think? The the question that um, the the wife of Steve Burnett, whom I just mentioned, uh, the the scholar of Jewish exegesis. Amy Burnett teaches uh, Reformation history at the University of Nebraska, and she's written a brilliant book on the sacramental controversies. And what she points out is that, yes, it was about the presence of Christ, but it was also about the power of the Word of God, uh, because what, uh, what Luther really emphasized in the sacraments was the power of the Word of God. Um, in his small catechism, uh, the third question on baptism is, um, well, how can water do such great things? It's just said that the baptism forgives sins um, and brings life and salvation. And uh, and so the third question is the natural question of a child. Uh, how can water do such great things? And his Luther's answer is, it's not the water that does it. It's the word of God. It's the promise that God makes. God commits himself in his word to us in a real and actual way. That, I think, is... Maybe I don't get questions about that as often as I think I should because because it's it's not within the framework of the thinking of of most Americans. Though I I think the whole performative speech development in linguistic theory has has maybe made that conversation when it happens um, easier for for me as a Lutheran. Um, and then there's always the question: Well, aren't you really antinomian? Don't you really say you're saved by faith alone, so your works aren't really all that important? And I, I like to tell my students that, that the, Luther's answer to every question was, why do you want to know? Because there are usually several agendas behind most questions. And so um, uh, the, the question about works is a question of, of the of the point from which the question's being asked. Is it from someone who simply has his or her entire life not found himself, herself good enough to really be confident in the word of God? And Luther says the promise of God is sure, and you look to the promise. When you look to the promise and say, hey, I'm scot-free, I don't have to do good works, Luther brings the law 
his distinction of law and gospel is something we haven't mentioned yet, but it brings the, the law to bear and say, which says, you are righteous and um, and righteous people live righteously. They're not just righteous in God's imagination. They are righteous in fact, and you're not corresponding to the fact. That's sort of the way Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6. Can't I sin the more that grace may abound was the good old King James Version. And and uh, the and again, the good old King James Version said, God forbid. And why not? I'd tell people because they're going to go to hell. Paul tells us, because of your baptismal identity, God has claimed you as, as his own, and that's who you are. So be who you are, not this person who thinks he can do anything he wants to do. So that, that's another area where I think um, Lutherans don't always do a very good job of representing their own uh, theology. And, and it's hard to do in this sort of theoretical way because it's so pastorally oriented. What's the problem? of the people that I'm, the brothers and sisters that I'm dealing with right right now. Hmm. I'm curious, as someone who has traveled the world to teach at a number of different institutions and has seen Lutheranism um, on the ground in, in America, in Europe, you know, all over the world, does, does Lutheranism basically, I know there are going to be cultural differences that, you know, are just going to be there, but does Lutheranism basically look the same in America and Africa and Europe, or are there different, more substantial uh, brands of Lutheranism um, in different parts of the world? Um, that's really a yes and no question. Um, there are different brands, and, and many of them have European and North American roots and have spread to, to mission churches uh, and not growing out of native soil, but, but are imports from the missionaries. Um, but there, there certainly are differences, and and um, uh, certainly within India, for instance, where I've been able to teach uh, a couple of times uh, for a little bit longer uh, in COVID, uh, in the COVID era, simply because we've opened up to Zoom instruction. Um, some of these profound social issues just. Uh, take on a, a, a different cast, even though my answers would probably be the same in the United States as they are there, but um, they don't usually burn widows in India anymore. Well, I don't, I haven't heard of instances of that, but the abuse of women is, is a, a, even a more massive problem than it is in the United States, if we can believe that there. Um, so there are, there are those kinds of environmental differences. And then there are different stages of development in the in really settling into the culture. India is a good example, not just with Lutherans. Um, I think he, he was an Anglican, and all I remember is that his name was Thomas, and three quarters of the Christians in India are named Thomas uh, with foreign uh, with first name or a last name. But a um, uh, hundred years ago. He tried to uh, depict Jesus in the robes of a guru. Well, gurus were Buddhists or Hindus, and uh, there was massive protest, and he finally said, I'm not sticking around, and went to London to, to do his artwork for the rest of his life. Um, 
when I was uh, teaching in, in Chennai 10 years ago, I was told that only then were Indian Lutherans really starting to develop their own hymnody. They were using uh, not, not so much uh, German Lutheran or Scandinavian Lutheran hymns, uh, but English 19th century hymns. Um, and so, uh, so there, there's that kind of difference. So I would say uh, there are some similarities and commonalities and, um, and, and parallel tensions between the biblical message and the culture, the not just for Lutherans, around the world. And you notice those when you, when you stay. I've never been a missionary. I, I've only uh, flown in and flown out and maybe spent uh, a month or six weeks, some places, some places even shorter. Um, so my, my point of view is, is not all that reliable. Um, but th th that reflects uh, something of the insights that I've gotten from the, uh, the missiologist at Yale who died maybe two, three years ago, Lamansane, uh, who was born in the Gambia in West Africa. But he points out that um, when Christianity, he, he was born a Muslim, raised a Muslim, became a, a Christian, I think, in his teenage years, um, that when you become a Muslim, the ideal is to learn the learn enough Arabic so you can read the Quran and pray in Arabic. Christianity um, doesn't even have the uh, very much from Jesus' own mouth in Aramaic. It's all translation. God Himself translated Himself into human flesh, um, and so uh, Christianity is always adapting itself, translating itself into specific cultures. Um, the good side of that is that God really makes himself present in the plurality that probably suggests the magnificence of his own uh, being uh, in, in, in the way that the, those, uh, those creatures that are images of God or in the image of God uh, develop. Um, so it's wonderful that, that, that the gospel can, can speak in every culture and every language. Um, the danger is, of course, that the cultural values that come from sinful people then twist what Christians are doing in one place or another. And uh, that's a battle that every Christian uh, throughout the world face. And, and we know that in North America right now very much. So if, if I or somebody who's listening wanted to learn more about Luther and Lutheranism, where would you say to start for Luther? And where would you just say to start for just Lutheranism more generally? Uh, that's a that's a very good question. There, uh, one of the things that I've um, regretted is that there's not a good overall study of of Lutheranism. Uh, Martin Lorman at uh, Wartburg Seminary in Dubuque, L O H R M A N N. Um, Martin has has uh, assembled a kind of uh, sort of a timeline approach to Lutheran history so that you get some sense of the of the the spectrum of Lutheran experiences. There are some books, for instance, on the theology of the Lutheran confessions, probably the most formidable and kind of difficult, I think, uh, even for my students sometimes, 
is one by Edmund Schlink, a German theologian of my grandparents' generation. For Luther, there are several theologies of Luther. Um, I suppose my favorite, apart from my own, is, uh, is Oswald Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R. Um, Oswald Bayer is a, a retired professor about my age um, from the University of Tübingen. And his, um, I think it's simply called The Theology of Luther, a Contemporary Account from uh, Fortress Press, is maybe my favorite way of talking about what Luther thought in 21st century terms. Um, there's an, another uh, fun book, uh, even though I think the illustrations are silly. Um, the uh, uh, Westminster John Knox Press put out a, a, a series called Arm, uh, So-and-So for Armchair Theologians. And Stephen Paulson, uh, P-A-U-L-S-O-N, uh, Stephen Paulson wrote Luther for Armchair Theologians. And that's, that's maybe a, a good way for somebody outside Lutheranism. In terms of the way Lutherans think, too, we could go back to another book by Oswald Bayer uh, called Theology, the Lutheran Way. And uh, that's, that's been out for a few years now. So th those are some suggestions for places to, to begin. None of them are, are uh, really simple level, but, but I think they're readable for uh, interested Christians of, across the spectrum. As as we land the plane here, I have a very very similar question. But do you have a favorite Lutheran systematic theologian that you would uh, direct people to? This could be someone writing now or in the tradition, you know, centuries ago. Uh, uh well, uh, there are any number in the tradition. Um, I even uh, had a, a Lutheran pastor tell me once he was converted to Christianity, not just to the Lutheran tradition, but to Christianity by reading Chem Martin Chemnitz's On the Two Natures of Christ from the 1570s. I find that so thick and boring, but uh, he he did not, <laughs> and praise the Holy Spirit for using whatever he can. Um, uh, I've read Chemnitz's sermons. They're lively. I like reading sermons. Um, actually, um, the... the Oswald Bayer has, has shaped the way I think a lot. We're good friends, and um, but long before he was my my good friend. Uh, another theologian that has helped me a whole lot is, uh, again, a man who was my friend, though he was 15, 20 years older than I. Uh, Gerhard, he said Ferdi, F-O-R-D-E. He was a Norwegian, and they say an old, like, ooh. So Gerhard Ferdi, um, his theology for proclamation is also an excellent introduction to um, to the way Lutherans uh, can think in this new linguistic theory world. Um, uh, his "Where God Meets Man" is a kind of that's that's simpler. That's a, a good place to start, maybe. Um, and his On Being a Theologian of the Cross, we haven't talked about Luther's Theology of the Cross, but On Being a Theologian of the Cross is per perhaps a, a very good study. That's by um, by Ferdy also, uh, of 
of how Christians expect that the God who suffered on the cross for us is the God who is going to defeat Satan, uh, not by getting us out of suffering, but by having us suffer with the, under the burdens of sin in this world. And so um, those would be some suggestions I would have for, awesome. for getting started with, uh, with Luther and Lutheran theology. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun. So number one, thank you for joining us. Uh, number two, my last question, this should be easy, is do you have a, a certain location where if people want to find your work or read your stuff, is, is it best to go to like your faculty website or, or is there another place to find that? Um, I suppose Amazon. Uh, I hate to admit that because I hate these big... Uh, th- th- there I'm Luther's disciple. I'm, I'm not always his disciple on capitalism, but, um, but some of these um, uh, super big firms. Uh, or go to um, a Baker uh, Academic in, in um, Grand Rapids. Has uh, published three or four of my books, four of them, I think. And Fortress also. Uh, as well as Concordia uh, has a couple of my books. I I would encourage people to go to their local bookstore. It costs more than it does on, on uh, the internet, but um, local bookstores are just wonderful. Yeah, that, that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I think this has been really helpful, really really great conversation. So, everybody's listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.